I wonder what the most difficult thing that you've ever done in your life would be. What is the most challenging thing that you've ever done, whether it's physically or emotionally or mentally? When I look back at my own life, I can think of a few examples of challenging, difficult things. Running an ultramarathon, 33 miles running non-stop, total climb equal to Ben Nevis. That was uh, pretty tough. Didn't walk the next day very much. Or the world's largest obstacle course, 20 miles, 200 obstacles to traverse. Again, didn't walk much the next day after that. But that's kind of physical hardship. At other times in my life, if you'd met me 10 years ago, I'd often been using a walking stick. So praise the Lord that he healed me so much that I could do those things. So actually, you can give praise in times of hardship sometimes. What about the mental challenge? My final exams in Oxford, they were absolutely grueling, uh, the mental capacity needed for that. Well, how about emotional pain? What's been the most emotionally challenging thing in your life? For me, I think of taking the funerals of my grandfather and my uncle, where my family were mourning, but I had to step up and lead. That was emotionally draining. Or I think about the breakup of my last relationship, which was deeply painful. Or how about the challenge in, in ministry and life? You're, you're doing you know, on-the-street ministry next weekend. Well, I've done some of that myself, and I find, even as a trained minister, approaching complete strangers and asking them, do you want me to pray for you? Do you know about Jesus? To be absolutely terrifying. Really challenging to put yourself in that kind of vulnerable situation. Or what about hardship you maybe face because you've become a Christian? So in my own situation, and I'll share this with you today, my family, particularly my mother, have not been supportive of me moving to Japan to do the Lord's work. It's got to the point where my own mother has looked at me and said, if you go, you'll be dead to me. I don't even want to know if you're ill. It's got to the point where when I said I wasn't planning on coming home, because of how it could impact language learning and ministry and expenses, she walked away and gave me two fingers. I live with my parents. That's a hard thing to process and live through. Maybe you've got broken family situations in your life as well. It isn't easy to avoid these kind of hard experiences in life, to take the path of least resistance, to sit on the fence and just keep out of things. Sometimes that's what we want to do in life. But is that really an option when it comes to the gospel? Because at the end of the day, there's only two categories of people in this world that really matters. There's those who believe in Jesus as Lord and God and Savior, who are saved from condemnation, who have eternal life and peace. And there's those who don't believe, who remain in sin and condemnation. After Jesus died to save us from our sin, to take our condemnation on himself, he rose from the dead and he sent out his disciples to spread his message. And what was the message that they sent? Well, Peter and John, two of the main disciples, they were in our reading today, they were called up before the religious council of the Jews to give an explanation of why they were talking and preaching about Jesus as Lord and God and Saviour. And this is what they said to that council. Salvation is found in no one else. 
For there is no other name under heaven given to us by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way. He's the only truth. He's the only life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And that belief spurred the church on to reach out beyond the people of Israel to the Samaritans, the ancestral enemies of God's people, and even to the Romans, their current political subjugators and conquerors and enemies. And then missionaries went out to tell people about Jesus all over the world, from Spain to India and Macedonia and Ethiopia, Arabia. Many missionaries went alone, but they were supported by their partners back home who prayed for them in their work, who who prayed for them and supported them financially and with other means. And together as a whole, the church worked as one to spread the name and message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Each person had a unique role to play in that spread of the gospel. And almost universally, the sharing of the gospel at that time, the promise of eternal life in Jesus It brought incredible difficulty. It brought hardship. It hurt people's social standing. It broke friendships. It it brought financial burdens. And yet the message of eternal life, of complete forgiveness at the cross, of a life without condemnation, a life without shame, of a future where every wound is healed and every tear is wiped away, That's a news too good not to share. And so they shared that message. And it's too good a message not to share today. So whether you're going to Japan, the other side of the world like me, or you're going to the houses down your street, the good news is just too good not to share with those around you. And as I look forward to Japan to essentially becoming like a small child again, unable to to speak fluently or to understand the world around me. When I think of how humbling, often humiliating, that might be, it's certainly going to be a challenge. Japan is infamous for being a difficult place to do missionary work. You work yourself to the bone, but you see few results. In many ways, it's like Hull in that respect. Now, I could easily stay here in England preaching and teaching and pastoring, avoid the hardship, avoid the trouble, and undoubtedly likely see more results, as the world might call it. But here's the thing that I've been reflecting on recently, and lately I've been praying through. I honestly believe that every person here today is called to be a missionary in some sense. The great preacher... Charles Spurgeon, 19th century, he said this, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. I love that challenge. I love that challenge. The call to share the faith, to support the sharing of the faith is fundamental to our identity as Christians. You can't be a Christian without, in some way, not necessarily even with words, in some way supporting the mission of the church. But we all have different roles to play in this, different seasons in life, different places that God puts us in, different gifts, different talents, different callings. 
And thankfully, we're not all the same. Because I couldn't cope with another me. One of them's plenty enough. So what we're really called to is not just that idea of being a missionary. It's more fundamental. What we're called to is wherever God places us, we're called to faithfulness. We're called, whether we find ourselves in a place of joy or a place of despair, to be faithful to Jesus, faithful to his sacrifice for us on the cross, faithful to his love for us, and faithful to his truth revealed to us. And yes, faithful to the call, the broad call, to make disciples of all nations. And we're not promised an easy time. In fact, far from it, we're promised the opposite by Jesus. We're not even promised that we will see the results that we would like to see. But we are promised that if we are faithful where we find ourselves, God will be with us and at work in our lives and the lives of those around us. So I want to share three reasons, there's lots more you could find in the Bible, but three reasons why we should all be involved in mission, in evangelism, in sharing our faith, and why it matters so much to us, even here in Hull. I want to share these three motivations that help us to keep faithful to our individual calling in those challenging and trying times. Because here's the thing, whatever we're doing, things will get hard in our lives. There will be difficulty and darkness and a need for strength to be able to adapt and overcome. The path will be rocky at times. And it's our motivation, our reason for doing things that's going to pull us through and keep us going through that darkness. So here's the first motivation, the first reason. Duty. Duty should motivate us. At the end of the day, being a Christian, taking the name of Jesus Christ, means doing what he says. The most fundamental truth of all spiritual growth and discipleship in our lives, when you boil it down to the basics, begins with a simple recognition. He is God. We are not What God says goes. My favorite verse in the Bible is Psalm 115, verse 3, and it simply says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he wants. What a great verse to have as a life verse to take you through your life. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he wants. We are the clay. He is the potter. When God says, jump, you don't ask questions like how high. You just jump because God is the one who says so. And God has given clear commandment to his church about what he wants us to do. What his final command was is the Great Commission. Jesus gave this to the church before he returned to heaven. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. It's a pretty straightforward command to the church. Go and tell every single nation about me. Teach them everything I taught you and baptize them. And we should be glad that the church did that, otherwise we wouldn't be Christians here today. But that mission involves 
all of the church, not just the disciples, the whole church, because the church is the body of Christ. And without the whole body working together, it falls flat. We see this in Paul's letters, when he is constantly asking people to pray for his missionary work, to pray for his ministry. He relies on their prayer. In Free John, the same John who, who said that there's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved but Jesus. In his letter, he's saying that he's sending out missionaries all over modern-day Turkey. And he says this to the churches who might receive them. We ought, not we, we might or we may, we ought, it's a command, to support people like these. That we may be fellow workers in the truth. Isn't that a beautiful idea? However you're supporting the mission of the church, you become fellow workers in the truth. Few may go, but the prayer and material support of others is what carries them through. And the whole church together obeys the command to go and make disciples of all nations. So duty Simply doing it because God says so is one motivation and reason for all that we do. But honestly, and I do work with army chaplaincy, duty is rarely something that excites the heart. And when the going gets really tough, most difficult, duty alone is likely to fail us at the end of the day. So how about another motivation, a reason for mission and evangelism in, in our church? Giving glory to God. Giving glory to God. God saved you. God died for you. God made you. He gave you everything you have. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the judge. He's the savior. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. In Philippians, Paul tells us that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. It's about the glory of Jesus, the glory of God. Every knee should bow before him and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Just as ours do. God should be glorified by all. But how will he be glorified by all if they don't? hear about him and how will they hear about him if nobody tells them and how will someone tell them if no one is sent and how will people be sent if they're not supported by the whole church together in fellowship partnership fellow workers in the truth seeking God's glory Paul tells us in Romans 15 that Christ became a servant here on earth and died for us in order that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, all the nations, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That's why Jesus came, that God might be glorified. So duty and God's glory. But there's one more motivator to speak of, which gives real meaning and power and life to both of those. And I'd say it's the most important one because duty is cold and it's hard. And the glory of God, as wonderful as that is, in the dark night of the soul, 
It's quite an abstract idea. We need something that really hits us here. And so when I think in my life, and I don't know what you're thinking of in your life, but when I think about all I'm going to have to give up to go to Japan, of the pain it's causing my family, of the difficulty of language learning and Crohn's disease causing me anxiety about how I'll live and eat out there, the, the momentous size of this move. I've never been away from home for more than 10 weeks. And I'm going to the other side of the world for three years. When I consider how every missionary says, Japan's a graveyard for missionaries. It's hard, unresponsive. When I think of those things, this is what really keeps me going, stops me from giving up, and I'm sure will sustain me when I'm out there. And it's the same thing, which ultimately must empower and sustain Jubilee Church's work here in Hull and around this world. It's the core and central thing in everything that we do for Jesus. It's the heart of real faithfulness. And it's love. Love is the center. Now, as a good Anglican, Church of England minister, I couldn't possibly preach and, and not mention Thomas Cranmer, who founded the Church of England. And he had this to say, his theology, his idea about how humans work. And I think it's really powerful and profound. He said something like this. What the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. What the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. In other words, when you love something, when you love someone, your willingness to do things for them follows on from that love. And even when those things are difficult and those things are hard and everyone else calls you crazy, you do them and you pursue them, you justify it, give a reason for it in your mind, no matter how stressful, because they're what you love. From your heart to your will to your mind. After the resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples as they just finished a night of fishing. It's basically a repeat of the first time that he met Simon and Simon Peter and the other disciples, and he told them then two things. Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. That's what Jesus said to make them disciples. Follow me, I will make you fish for people. So the context of what's going on in our Bible reading today, is going back to that call. They've gone back to fishing for fish when Jesus told them to go fish for people. And so there's a miraculous catch of fish. And Jesus says at the end, follow me. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. 
The third time, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. There's the glory. Then he said to him, follow me. There's the duty. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs, even though it may lead to your death. Peter, I want you to do those things. Do you love Jesus? Do you really love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Then, will you give him the glory? Will you do your duty in mission all around the world, including here on the streets in Hull? And it isn't just there and in this way that love motivates us, our love for God and Jesus. Because love is powerful. Love changes everything that it touches. Love makes us do crazy things that we wouldn't normally want to do because we want to do them with the people that we love. You might not enjoy watching those really terrible TV shows, but yet you sit on the sofa at the end of the night with your partner and you watch them because they enjoy them and you've learned every part of the story of what's going on even though you really don't care. But you still watch them and in the end you start to actually be interested yourself. You might not enjoy going to ice hockey and watching what happens there, but you still go when your partner wants you to. And maybe over time, you start cheering for the team as well. And you start to love what they love. Love changes us. It makes us love the things that the people we love love. What does God love? What's the most famous verse in the Bible? Yeah, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him, wherever you come from, whatever your background, whatever you've done, however old you are or young you are, whatever, doesn't matter. God so loved the world and gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but should have eternal life. God loved the world. He loved it. And not just the Jews. He loved the Samaritans. He loved the Greeks. He loved the Romans. He loved the Italians. He loved the English. He loved people from Yorkshire and people who sadly aren't from Yorkshire. But he still loved them all. All the nations are loved by God. He loves them. And as Peter tells us in his second letter, the only reason that Jesus hasn't returned already 
is because he loves. He's being patient. He's not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to repent of their sin and come to him for healing and cleansing. It's his patient love that is delaying his coming. So do we love the world? Do we love all nations? Do we, as God does, even love our enemies? One of my favorite books is a very short book written by a Ugandan bishop from the East African Revival. Idi Amin was a terrible dictator. He killed lots of the bishops and church leaders in Uganda. Horrific times. There's a book published simply called I Love Idi Amin. It's a book about how the love of God, even for your enemies, can change lives. It's a powerful book. Do we love our enemies? Do we love the world? Do we love those who we have no contact with, who we have no real connection to enough to do something about it? The reason why I'm going to Japan, among many things, it's been a long-standing thing throughout my life, but the thing which finally made me go, Lord, okay, I need to do something. Of all things, it was a YouTube video. It was a comedy video by an American living in Japan doing comedy in Japanese with English subtitles. It's many-led, but it was funny, trust me. And it was 30 things that you'll never see in Japan. And it was things like a train that's late, litter on the street. You'll never see a ninja. Is that because they're not real or because they're really good at being ninjas? And then halfway through that video was two words as a joke. A Christian. I'm not someone who cries regularly, physically weeping, but my heart broke under the power of the Spirit that night, and I wept, and I knew I had to do something more about it. God loves us. He loves the world. Are we going to do something about it? Will our hearts, filled with God's love poured into us, overflow? To those around us. Because if we truly understand how much God loves us, how much he loves each of you, you'll love him back. And if you love him back, you'll want to see him glorified, magnified and adored and worshipped. And if you love him and you want that, you'll keep his commandments. Do your duty. And you will love those whom he loves. And you'll love those he calls to go out to them. So duty and glory and love, free motivations for, for world mission, for local mission, for the sacrifices each of you can make every day in spreading that gospel here and now in this city. Free motivations for, for serving in the church with your gifts and your unique talents. Sometimes even stepping up to serve when you don't feel particularly gifted or talented because God empowers faithfulness where God places us to be faithful. In a few months, I'll be going to Japan. It will undoubtedly be the most difficult and challenging, likely the loneliest experience of my life. And yet, through all those fears and those worries, the hurdles and the challenges, I'm excited. I'm hopeful. I'm expectant because God is good and God is in charge. I want this because he wants this. The cost is worth it, and so I'll go. Because my heart 
loves Jesus, desires for him to be glorified in my life. Because this is what he commands. So what is Jesus asking of you in your life right now, today? What is he demanding of you? How is he calling you to take part in the Great Commission to tell the whole world from Hull to Hidosaki about Jesus and his love? How is he asking you to take up your cross, to do the difficult thing, the costly thing, and be fellow workers, partners in the gospel? What is he asking you to give up and share for his love? What challenges are you facing right now in your life? What dark paths are you wandering down in this season, in your faith as you seek to glorify him and be faithful? Whatever those things may be, come back to the heart. Come back to the heart. Come back to the center of it all and find rest. Find recuperation and washing and cleansing and strength and chains that are broken and hope afresh. Come back to the love of Jesus for you. Know what it is that he's asking of you right now and whatever it is, in love, in glory, in duty, be faithful to that call. And so I'll end before I say a prayer with this from 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. And so we know and we rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever, whoever lives in love, lives in God, and God lives in them.